we're going to look at Psalm 30 uh, this morning as we are doing marching our way during the summertime through these psalms sequentially. Uh, and last week we looked at Psalm 29 and got to a little bit of help interpreting the voice of the Lord through um, nature and particularly a thunderstorm and also his spoken word uh, that would have been spoken in his temple. Um, and today is another psalm that is helping us with uh, interpretation of life uh, in a way, but is specifically going to help us think about hardship. Um, so if I, um, it, hardship is just one of those things when we look at the psalms, it is just everywhere. Sometimes it makes me wonder about this guy, David. Um, he seems to be every way, everywhere, everywhere he turns, there's just trouble in this guy's life. Um, he's certainly been through the ringer. Uh, but the, what's gonna, what this psalm is going to do for us is this is providing a testimony um, through David's lens of a particular situation in his life that is meant to nourish uh, the people of God. Uh, I, before I read it, don't get to, I just want to acknowledge, don't get distracted by the title of this psalm, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. After a lot of study and looking into it, I have no idea what that means. Uh, And I'm not convinced anyone else really does either, because the psalm doesn't appear to have anything to do with the temple. Um, But I'll let you uh, hypothesize on your own. But the real thing that we are looking at here, um, and especially this morning, is how this psalm functions in the life of the people of God. That it was given not just for one moment, but it was given to us to read again and again and again, uh, those before us and those after us. Uh, to mold us as a corporate community. So, uh, that being said, uh, this is Psalm 30, uh, and this is God's Word. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong, and you hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Your Father, would you uh, give us insight by your Spirit into your ways? Would you have mercy on us and deal with us tenderly as we contemplate our own hardships and those around us in our community? Uh, Would you lead us um, into the strength that only you provide? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. the thing that brought to my mind this week that um, in studying this psalm um, is that hardship is just an ordinary part of the Christian life. Uh, it is not something that is um, random. 
It is not something that is um, to be unexpected to some degree. It is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong um, in terms of our standing with God or in his love or his treatment with us. Uh, It is just one of those things, if we look through the whole Bible, it, it it seems to be there again and again and again and again in the people of God. And I know that we know that. Uh, we certainly know that intellectually, um, but it just pops out when the situation is right that it is not something that um, we tend to know deep down in our, our hearts, much less accept. Um, just think about the words that we use, um, like, come on, God, like, why this? Why today? Or like, you promised that you were going to take care of me, and what the heck is going on here? And it doesn't take much, just the right storm of stress or hardship that comes into our lives. And, and that little seed of doubt comes in, like that uh, this is not something that is normal. And this is there is something that is just has to be off, um, something that has to be wrong with this situation. I mean, even to the point, like if you look at me and my house, especially when no one else is around, like Lord willing, when no one else is around, like God somehow becomes responsible for inanimate objects that are in my way. Like, why did you put these Legos in my path or move that door frame a few inches this way when you knew I was going to walk through it? Like, there's just that frustration has to go somewhere and be directed somewhere, and it often is turned to God. And I do want to clarify, I'm not saying that it is in any way good to pretend or believe that hardship is necessarily a good thing. It is always an intruder. It is always something that never should have been. Um, a case in our lives. But there is this thing that happens in our hearts when we experience of how we start to look at God and his relationship with us while we are in hardship. And I think that is why this psalm is given to us. It's given, uh, like I said, like the, the one last week was a lot about interpreting the world around us, his word and thunderstorms and all that kind of stuff. But this is given to us as a gift to help us to interpret the times that we're in, particularly hardship. Um, And in that way, particularly how God behaves towards us in hardship. I think that, you know, in thinking about this, I couldn't help but, you know, when I am in trouble or in things are hard, the thing I immediately want to know is why this is happening. And I don't want to take us too far afield, but I do think that that's just a natural response that we're going to have. And as we interrogate this psalm, um, uh, that we probably, is it going to be a question that we are going to bring? Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't really answer that question anywhere in here. We get some aspects about what's going on and we might, we might can theorize what it is, uh, but God doesn't actually give us that response. And I think there are some good reasons why we can ask that question. Like sometimes we just want to know how long it's going to be uh, before we have to endure this um, or those kinds of things. I do think there might be something a little bit prideful even in the question is that we want to reserve the right before God to determine what is acceptable for us and what is not acceptable to us according to our own wisdom and according to our own resources. And this is going to be the tension that we are going to, this psalm is going to drive at. It is going to be going to drive at the mercy of God. And it is going to drive at the fearful, prideful tendency of us that when we are in hardship, 
to depend on our own resources, and in doing that, to start to assume things about God and to shape our posture before Him. There is a direct connection between our pride and our being alone and our humility and our having the very thing that we need, being the help of God. Uh, This is going to come to us in the form of a personal testimony. Uh, This is a testimony of something that happened to David. Um, Again, it is not exactly clear what it was. It looks like um, it is he had some kind of a physical, maybe a sickness or something like that based in verse 2, where he claims to have been healed by God. But this is a general thing that can apply to lots of situations and lots of different hardships. And so I think the value of what this is in having this testimony and that it's going to put God's work into a concrete situation uh, that is lived out. So these are not just theories off in space about what God is like and what he does, but it's going to use a concrete situation individual in order to, um, to teach us about God and how, what he is like towards us. Um, but it's going to do uh, three different things. I think we're going to look at the pattern that it demonstrates Uh, the perspective that this allows us to have, and then the proper response uh, that's going to call from us. Um, And just starting off and looking at the pattern that this establishes, uh, just another difficulty here is when we get a testimony of somebody else um, that that tells us about what God did for us um, in a particular moment, or what God did for them in a particular moment, that in itself can provide us with some challenges. And I think the challenge is because we don't know, it doesn't give us guarantees of exactly what it's going to look like in our lives based on that testimony. And so we could respond to it in a, in a couple of different ways. One, we could take, say, this example of David, what God did for David, that he healed him, he raised him up, he snatched him out of death and that. And then that becomes the paradigm through which that we look at God. And this is, this is what I expect. So I expect in this situation, this is... Based on this, you are promising that this should be in my situation as well. And that, and we, I think it doesn't take much life like, to realize that that's, it just doesn't go that way. And that inevitably will lead to frustration and anger and particularly uh, bitterness towards God. Uh, but it also can, we can go on the other side of that situation too and say, well, that's great for David. But I know that I don't know exactly what God is going to do in my life. And therefore, there's nothing here that I can really depend on. Like, good story, David, um, but I'll, you know, I just, I just don't know. And so we kind of take an agnostic you know, view of what God is going to do. And so I want to acknowledge those of just thoughts or attitudes that we are bringing to this text um, and with it coming to us as a personal testimony. But look at what David does, is that it's not doing either one of those things. It's not making promises that this is exactly what's going to happen. And it's also not giving us nothing either. It's giving us something that is very sure, a sure foundation and something that can be depended on, but it comes in the form of a pattern. So see here, he starts off, he's extolling the Lord for uh, certain situations that happened in his life, um, that he was drawn up out of death. Um, This is an interesting word. This is like, it's the word that would be used for something drawn out of a well. So it's it's a mental image here. It's like I mean, you can just picture being stuck in a well. Like, death is like being down at the bottom of a well. There is no way out of here. It is just deep darkness. That There is no resources of the person down there to get out. And yet God somehow 
reached down and grabbed him and pulled him out. And then it goes on and it says that he cried for help and the Lord healed him. He snatched him his soul for Sheol. That's just like from the brink of death um, and brought him up. These are the particular things that happen. He has not let his foes rejoice over him, which is not necessarily saying that there were foes trying to, but it's like there was no occasion for anybody to gloat at David's, David's downfall because the Lord did this. But then what does he get from that? Um, he goes on and he, he commends everybody else to also sing praises to the Lord. And he kind of gives us these proverbs that form a particular pattern. He says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So the particulars of David's situation, what they are, they are just, they are demonstrating a certain pattern about what God is like and how he deals with people that is very dependable. It does not always work out the exact same way in every situation, but the pattern is always there. It is something that is just, just so intimately connected with who God is that it is recognizable in any of the work that God does in his people's lives. And just what are these patterns? Like, look at these things um, coming through it. Just look at his, uh, he got snapped up out of death. Like, that is a theme that is very prominent here throughout this psalm, is David is afraid of death um, itself. And yet God reaches down and he snatches him out of that. Like, there is this movement that goes from death to life that is just so consistent with who God is and what he does. This was like this for Israel when he brought them out of slavery um, and he redeemed them and brought them to a good land. Um, it is this, this movement from death, from being stuck, from being trapped, and, and out God delivering out of that and bringing, um, and bringing to life. David experienced this in his own life through the situation. And, he's, and it's like he can say, I know where that comes from because that is just like it is so consistent with God's character and that this is, this is the kind of thing um, and how he operates. We might not know exactly how, when, um, or any of those other details, but it is just something that is, that is utterly consistent um, with God's uh, past work, uh, with the testimony throughout all of Scripture. Uh, but look at else. Like, that's one pattern that we see here very clearly. Um, another one is this. Uh, but his anger, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. So he's almost taking the same, the same pattern of life to death, of death to life, and he is apply, applying it according to how God deals with our sin. He's saying in comparison, just based on his, God's character, that he, his anger, it might be like for a little, for this little moment. But in comparison with the breadth of his grace, it is like it doesn't even compare. It is like one little moment compared to a lifetime. And that's just what God is like. That his anger, it is not geared towards annihilation or destruction or putting us down in shame or whatever. But it is always a vehicle through which any form of God's discipline is a vehicle through which he is actually distributing his grace. That will not be the last word. The last word will always be um, his unmerited favor, the grace um, that he has demonstrated in his covenant. 
Uh, more than that, what we see here. And just notice how this, um, this psalm ends. I love this line in the very, very end. And David is saying that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you for how long? For forever. This is because you have turned me from my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and you have clothed me with gladness. Another aspect, just a pattern of how God operates, is that his work is always vindicated in joy. It is not just vindicated in getting rid of all the bad stuff. It is not just vindicated in rest. Um, it is not just vindicated in any of these other things that we might think of. It is, the story is not done until those who are struggling have that in a greatly disproportionate way. Again, where the suffering is for a moment and then the joy is for a lifetime is that same pattern. That the job is not done until his people are struggling, um, who are suffering, um, that their mourning is turned into joy. That is just what he is like. And of course, when we think about this, this is all through the lens of God's covenant that he has demonstrated from his people, towards his people time and time again. But as this is all, this pattern is so clearly uh, perfected and consummated in the person of Jesus Christ in every single way. Because Jesus is the one who was not just snatched out of death, but he is the one who went actually into death further than David did for our sake. And then was raised up to new life, never to die again, so that he could share with his people actual resurrection from the dead. We look at Jesus and we see that pattern perfected and we see it guaranteed for us. Um, In the same way here, when we think about God's anger, we can think through the Old Testament of all these times where God um, has judgment on his people, always for a redemptive purpose, uh, always to cleanse them and always to bring them back into his covenant fold. When we see Jesus, we see the full breadth of God's anger and wrath poured out on Jesus. And the righteousness and delight that belongs to Jesus was given to his people. So that when we look at God and we consider the anger that we deserve from him, and we also consider the, just, just the unmerited riches and grace of the kingdom of heaven, it just does not compare. It is perfected in Jesus. We look at Jesus and we see that pattern uh, fully perfected and fully consummated. But again, even just thinking about joy. Uh, I heard um, another pastor in talking about this psalm where I thought very insightfully um, went to uh, Jesus' first miracle. You know what Jesus' first miracle was? Is when at the wedding of Cana, when he turned water into wine. And in, with any rabbinic teacher, their first miracle, your first act like that was very important. Not that they, any of them would have uh, um, compared to what Jesus did. Um, but this kind of, it gave a direction um, and a, uh, to what you, the rest of your ministry would be like. And what is Jesus saying by doing that? That he came to do a lot of things. He came to lay down his life for us. He came to suffer for us. He came to bring resurrection life. But where it all began for him and where it will end would be not just with those things. It would be with joy. Jesus came and proclaimed a party to his people that will be overflowing with wine. And this story will not end 
until there is another party that is overflowing with wine and overflowing with joy. And so what does this mean for us? Like we, I can't stand here and promise exactly what my life is going to look like, and I can't promise you what your life is going to look like either in any of the particulars. But according to this, according to David's testimony and according to uh, the gift that we have been given in the person of Jesus Christ, when you are stuck in deep darkness, it could be like physical suffering, it could be depression, it could be any form of darkness that we have, and you look at it and say, there is just no way out of this. Then we have these, we have this pattern in this person, and we have the same pattern in the person of Jesus that speaks to us and promises us that this is not the end. When we feel like God is angry at us, when we are convicted of our own sin, and we know, we feel the shame that so easily haunts, then we have Jesus. We have the testimony of David, the character of God, and more importantly, we have Jesus. And the full wrath of God poured out on him and his full delight and righteousness given to us. And we have Jesus, the one who came to bring joy. The one who is right now preparing a feast in heaven, a party for his people. That even though we might not understand how this is even possible, that it will end that way. But it ended that way with Jesus. And so we have him to hold on to. We have him to cling to by faith and make his story our own. This is the pattern. And this is the lion's share of what I think this, is, this testimony has given us. But I do want to acknowledge these couple other things uh, which I think are important um, um, about this psalm. Just think about the, just the, test, the fact that this is a testimony. Um, it gives us a very unique and interesting perspective from a brother um, in the faith. Have you ever had somebody give you um, a testimony of something that they have been through already um, when you are stuck in that moment now? And it can be done very insensitively, uh, but essentially what that does is it's coming from somebody who has already been there. And they can say, look, I know what the deep darkness is like. I know what night feels like. I know what it's like when tears come to the house at night, almost like a visitor, an unwanted guest. Which, by the way, that's the imagery that we're getting in here about weeping coming for the night. Has that ever happened to you? Somehow, it's like at nighttime, then you get this unwanted visitor that comes into your mind and head and can't go to sleep. Um, that's what that means. But having somebody who's been there, is, is it, it provides an arm of support to be able to say, I know what that is like. Uh, I have been there, but I'm also able to look at it and share what it is like from the other end. And I'll give you an illustration. So I used to run track um, in the 4x4 relay, which I just absolutely hated. I mean, it is the most pain I think you can put on your body um, when you are going or when you're running around this track. So I would run third or fourth, one of the last two. Um, and this is what it's like. You're watching, you're nervous, you're watching these other guys go ahead of you. Um, and they're coming in and they're exhausted when they get there. And then you get the baton and you're super excited for your own run because you can do this. And you just burst out through that first turn uh, like you're just going to take over the world. 
And then you get, and then you get around it, and there's just this long straightaway that feels like forever. And then you're like, oh, I might have taken that a little bit too fast coming out of that uh, turn. But you endure and you struggle through. By that last turn coming home, you would, you literally start to contemplate just laying down on the grass, like you know, next to the, next to the, like it doesn't. I don't care who's watching; it doesn't matter anymore. I'm about to die, like right here. But then this moment happens, you come around that last curve, and who is there waiting for you? You have all of your other team members who have been there ahead of you. They know exactly where you are in that suffering right now. But they made it, and they are cheering for you. And they cannot wait for you to get there and to taste the joy of having completed the race, um, enjoying the fruits of your labors together. And it gives a boost to keep going. And you stop to think about your body as much, and you start to think about that, uh, what is happening. This is what happens in Hebrews chapter 11 and into chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Um, it, it just tells the story of people after people after people through the Bible, um, the, what, what they did, what their life was like, and their joys and then their triumphs, and it lists them out. And then we get to chapter 12. It says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? It is all those people who have gone ahead of us. It is David who has done this. Let us run the race and endure with confidence. Uh, Thinking about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising his shame. And I just want to put this before you just to ask, um, in thinking about just this dynamic of having uh, perspective from other people. We're getting, we got this heavenly perspective of this is what's happening with people going ahead of us. But we also have the same thing here to a degree right now. I think it is important to be in relationship with all kinds of people around us, with um, people we like, people we don't like, uh, believers, non-believers, all these kinds of things are very, very important. But it is really, really important to have people in your life who are pulling in the same direction as you are, um, that share that same deep core commitment of, of faith and of hope and of joy in the gospel. Because we cannot do this by ourselves. These testimonies, they are given to us for a reason, and we need them. And we need those people in our lives. And the other question is, are we the kind of people who actually can hear what other people say to us? And of course, we can get a lot of advice that is very harmful and detrimental and insensitive. But... Just because that is true, it doesn't mean that we also don't need to hear from other people to help us along this road. And so I I want to put that as a challenge. Are you able to receive perspective from other people who are in community with you, who love you, who have your best in mind? That they provide an important perspective. And lastly, I just want to name a few um, faithful responses of what I think this psalm is calling for us. Uh, Just a few wrong responses. And this might help clarify. Um, If our temptation is to tough it out um, when we are in trouble, um, to to make just forge some some commitment to endure and to be strong and to make it through, that kind of thing, uh, just turn here to look at verses 6 and 7 again. 
David says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong, and you hid your face, and I was dismayed. This is a poetic way of saying that um, in David, David saw wisdom in his own experience, that his only strength, true strength came from the favor of the Lord. It had nothing to do with his own resources. And when we think about how God relates to us when we are in trouble, the number one thing I think to take away from this that is an actual faithful response according to God, how he was revealed himself to us, is to ask for help. We need his help. We cannot do it on our own. We weren't made to do it on our own. And he's not even asking us to do it on our own. When we ask for help, we actually acknowledge that he is strong. And that his favor is sure. It has been guaranteed for us on the cross. We are never more strong than when we have the help of Jesus given to us. And that is something that is absolutely uh, sure and dependable. So a wrong response would be to tough it out. One of the, the best thing we can do is learn to ask for help. That that is our default posture towards him. Another uh, wrong response would be the opposite of just taking the passive way out and saying, you know what, if that's true, um, I'm just going to accept whatever comes. I'm going to put my head down. I'm not going to engage and I'm going to turn inward. And I would argue that's just an opposite version of the other one. And there can be elements of wisdom in that, but it's probably more a signifier of taking a flight um, attitude in a fight or flight um, spectrum than it is true faithfulness. Do you see what David does here? Um, look here, starting in verses, verse 8. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And then what does he does? He starts to argue with God. Very boldly. I think he is empowered to because he knows what's true before. He says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? And will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, my helper. He engages with God. If God is actually strong and actually a help, then it will it'll prompt us to engage with him and not run away from him. Because he is safe and he is faithful to us. And the last thing, I think in these same verses it betrays another attitude that is underneath um, these. You see what David is arguing for? He's not arguing for his own comfort. He's not arguing for riches. He's not arguing with God that his life would go exactly the way he wants it to go. You see what his appeal is? His appeal is to uh, the testimony of God. Uh, His faithfulness given to David. That he has a concern for the kingdom of God above even his own concerns. And this is the the very part which our hearts have the hardest time grabbing. um, Is actually releasing in our own vain pride and wanting to keep control of our lives. To release them and place them in the hands of God. But what the testimony of God is communicating to us, that if this is true, if your life is never more safe and secure than when you have a helper with you who is God, then the only rest for your soul 
in life is going to be to actually engage and depend on that helper. God, out of his mercy, is calling us as, a fam- as individuals, as a family, and as a community to turn to him and to entrust him with our very lives, which will feel like death. It will feel like the thing that is impossible to do for us. But if there is one last promise in Jesus Christ, and I'm closing with this, um, it is that he is the one who obeyed faithfully. He is the one who obeyed the Father's will all the way to the cross. He is the one who actually successfully was able to lay down his life because the Lord asked him to. And what do you have? You don't have your own strength to do that. You have the strength of Jesus who is in you and who is around you and who is going ahead of you in all of these things. And so in that, I want to close with just reading these words from Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. I would like us to all think about these things together. This is what it means uh, for the hope that we have um, in Jesus, if that is true. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we humbly ask that you would use your word, you would use the community that you have uh, put around us, you would use the ways that you are working in each other's lives to help us to remember and to depend on you above anything else, and that we truly might find rest for our souls in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.